Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. So you want to preach Christ from all the scripture. Great. But what does that actually mean? And what difference does preaching Christ from all the scripture make theologically and spiritually for the people of God? This week on City of God, I want to break down just a few ways that Christ, our hermeneutical key, makes a major difference for our faith and our practice and especially our doctrine. And what I'm trying to do here in the few minutes we have today is actually push a little bit into biblical doctrine and say that this is what it means for Jesus to be the center of our faith and our confession. It doesn't merely mean that we are saved through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Listen, that is the very core of Christianity. You cannot downplay the significance of Jesus dying on the cross to wash away our sin, absorbing the perfect wrath of God the Father for us, and then rising from the grave three days later to give us victory over death. Christian, if you are listening to this right now, that is your hope. That is your confidence. More than, more than these things, that is your very identity. We are slaves of Christ. He owns us. He bought us at great cost. His very precious divine blood is life. So Christians gladly confess that Jesus being the center of our faith certainly means that. If you don't confess that, if you don't believe that gospel, you're not a Christian, full stop. My point on today's podcast, though, as a systematic theologian, as a teacher of the Word of God, is that that is not where Christocentricity stops. That's not where it ends. In too many instances, in too many local churches, congregants don't hear much more about Christocentricity, Christ-centeredness, than that. And that leaves them not making biblical theological connections that I believe— as best I can understand the Word of God, God intends for us to make. So let's make some of those connections today. We're building off of our previous podcast where I tried to quickly establish that when we're faithfully interpreting the Scripture, we're doing justice to the original meaning, that dimension, and then of the passage, and then we're doing justice, secondly, to the Christocentric meaning of the passage. And I made the case there. So if you want want that case, go back and listen to that. I now want to talk about several ways in which Christocentricity makes a real difference theologically for us all. First, Jesus is the last word of God. He's the last word of God. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So what this means is that The Father has appointed the Son, the heir of all things. The Father has spoken to us by the Son, Hebrews 1, verse 2. And the Father created the world through the Son. What is this signaling? Well, this is signaling that the Father is the one who has authority to send the Son into the world to do the very work and will of the Father. We are so grateful to know this biblically. That's not a biblical truth that we downplay or mute or see as unimportant, that's actually spectacularly important. 
For our purposes, we need to see that we are not looking, this text teaches, for new words from God. We have, we have the final word of God. We have the Son. God has spoken to us through the Son. We have all we could ever need from God, in other words. So having Christ means that we have hermeneutical, epistemological, and theological sufficiency. We have everything we need to know and worship God. Is this not the confession of 2 Peter 1, verse 3? He's given us, freely given us, all things in Christ. Jesus is our sufficiency. Now, we will say that uh, to ourselves as believers, and praise God that we will say that to ourselves, but that means something. That has horsepower. That goes somewhere. It means that we are not to understand ourselves in theological and doctrinal and exegetical terms as lacking what we need from God. I'm surprised by how often I hear even conservative evangelical preachers say, I wish we had more. I wish the text said more than it does. Now, I understand that instinct in one sense because our knowledge clearly is not complete in the way that it will be complete in the new heavens and new earth for all eternity. And yet, God has spoken to us in these last days through his Son, by his Son, Hebrews 1 verse 2. He has said exactly what he needed to say through his beloved, through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the center of the Word of God. What is all of this meaning? This is meaning that we have finished revelation, the Son speaking to his apostles, teaching them, and then the apostles writing the very words of God, God using them as they were to produce the biblical text of the New Testament. All of that is our sufficient word. It's the last word. It's the final word, and thus it is the word we need. Second matter I want to mention quickly, Jesus is the new temple. John 2 verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. You know, there's a lot of discussion and debate among good-hearted, God-loving, theology-caring-about <laughs> evangelicals uh, today. So let that be said. We're going to disagree over some of the matters that I'm covering here, referencing briefly here. And I just want to put that on record, and uh, and so this is this is not the, the mark of being in the kingdom that you would agree with me or disagree with me or however you want to frame it. I am trying, though, to go to the biblical text and see what it is teaching me as best I can understand it, and I think that this text is teaching us that we need to reconceive our understanding of the temple. Jesus is indicating here that he is the new temple. In other words, the temple throughout the Old Testament is the center of the worship of God. You see temple dimensions in Eden, for example. It's the place where God is to be worshipped and obeyed and followed. And then that goes through some morphing throughout the Old Testament. There's the tabernacle, and then there's the actual temple itself. It's built and constructed, and it's this glorious place of worship of the living God. God dwells there in the Holy of Holies. But the temple is lost, as the Old Testament uh, concludes, as, the, as the, the narrative of the Scripture drives on. And so what happens early on in the New Testament is that Jesus indicates that he is the center of true worship now. You're not to go to a building. You're to, to worship Jesus Christ. This corrects and contradicts the way we talk about local churches. For example, we say we're going to the church. Oh, that's a beautiful church. Now, I'm not trying to theologically tase you if you've ever said those words. I've said them myself. I am trying to say that Jesus is teaching us theology and doctrine here. And there's further development of our understanding of the temple in the Bible. 
1 Corinthians 6, 19, for example, teaches us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So this doesn't mean that we worship ourselves. It does mean that God indwells us. God is making us a vessel of living worship of his name. And then you consider Revelation 21, 22, such a key text. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and Lamb. Now, this is interesting in terms of evangelical eschatology. There's no temple in the city. There's no reconstructed Old Testament temple. There's no reconstituted sacrifices or that sort of thing. The Lamb is the temple. The text explicitly says this. Revelation 21-22 identifies Jesus Christ, the Lord God, the Almighty, and Lamb, as the temple in the new heavens and new earth. So we're worshiping Christ in the new heavens and new earth. He is the center of our worship in a spiritual way, as he is now, but also in a completely physical way. What a beautiful reality this is. You see how Christocentricity makes a difference? Third, Jesus is the great high priest. Hebrews 7 teaches us that Jesus, as our great high priest, has no need. Like those high priests, the high priests of the Old Testament, Levitical high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself, Hebrews 7, 27. This means that we have the high priest we need. This is the great high priest. This is the last, in other words, high priest. Jesus brings the line of priests in the Bible, a very, very important biblical theological theme. He brings that line to a close. It doesn't mean, though, that he cancels out the concept of high priest. This is so important to to the way we put together Old and New Testament, Old and New Covenant. This goes back to Matthew 5, where Jesus teaches that he's not abolishing the Old Testament. He's not abolishing the Old Covenant. He's not, in other words, consigning it to the dustbin of history and saying, well, that worked for a while, but it, it has no bearing and no relevance anymore. It's of no importance to us. No, no, no. He's saying, I'm fulfilling that system I'm bringing it to its apex. I'm bringing it to its telos, its conclusion, the place it was supposed to go. Jesus was going to be the great high priest, in other words, from from earliest days when this line is established. So you cannot understand the, the biblical theological theme and concept of the great high priest or of the high priestly line outside of Jesus. He brings it to its conclusion. What a beautiful truth as well. We need to understand priest. In, in the Bible, as well as with temple and light of Jesus. Jesus is the new law, next and finally. In other words, Jesus shows us how to live. Jesus brings the teaching from God that we need in order to obey God rightly in the new covenant era. You see, fundamentally, there are two major eras in the Bible. There's the Old Covenant era, and there's the New Covenant era. There are several covenants that that God makes with his people in the Old Covenant era. But the Bible's apex covenant is the New Covenant. The New Covenant comes in the blood of Jesus. So all previous covenants are pointing ahead to Jesus, and all previous covenants are realized in the New Covenant of Jesus Christ. This not only means that we are sacrificially washed by the better blood, the effectual blood 
of Jesus Christ. This means as well that now we are following not the law of Moses, see 2 Corinthians 3 and 5 on this count, but now we are following the law of love, as we call it. You can see this in John, in John 13. Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This dovetails with the giving of the first and second greatest commandments in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 22, verses 34 to 39. Jesus is bringing, in other words, a new law. Here again, we're not saying that the old covenant law, the old covenant teaching, the old covenant scriptures are bad. We're not saying they, they have no import for our faith. We read them and learn God's will for his people. We learn about God's character because the law of God fundamentally communicates the character of God. And yet, Jesus is teaching us that we are not bound by Old Covenant law, including even the Ten Commandments. Jesus is teaching us now that he is the moral teacher we look to. We're not looking anymore to Moses as the one whose teaching binds us. Now we are looking to Jesus as the one whose teaching binds us. A related matter here uh, before we conclude for the day. We've packed a little bit into this humble little podcast, haven't we? I do not follow some theologians, much as I revere them and have learned from them, in breaking the, the law of God in the Old Testament into the moral, civil, and ceremonial dimensions. You've probably heard that. You've probably had a pastor cite that. If, if a pastor has cited that and you're hearing, you know, I, I don't think terrible things have been worked into your theology that you'll never recover from, and you won't make it across the River Jordan to the New Canaan. That's not what I'm saying. I do think that there's a better way to understand the law, and it is to understand the law as not being split apart. There is, of course, no biblical breakdown explicitly that would teach us that there are these three elements of the Old Covenant law, and one of them is moral and civil and ceremonial fall away. No, I think that if you read Matthew 5, if you read John 13, if you read 2 Corinthians 3 and 5, if you read the book of Hebrews, then you will see that Old Covenant law together as a whole is fulfilled by Jesus. So we can't split apart the law neatly and cleanly. I don't think it makes sense to say that when you're dealing with civil law, that doesn't relate to to the moral will of God. It certainly does as expressed in the Old Covenant life of God's people. You know, when you're dealing with ceremonies of, of Old Testament worship, are those important? Do, do those express something of God's own holy nature? Yes, they do. So I, for one, this is a broader issue to be sure, but I, for one, would not be an advocate of, of splitting up the law into those dimensions. If you want a good short chapter to read about all of these things, that delves into the idea of Sabbath, a matter I'll probably cover in a later podcast, I would encourage you to get the book Progressive Covenantalism. It's edited by Steve Wellam and Brent Parker. Again, the title, Progressive Covenantalism, and read the chapter by Tom Schreiner on the Sabbath. It's just about 23, 24 pages. It is explosively helpful for your theology and hermeneutics. In some friends, we don't simply want to pay lip service to the centrality of Jesus Christ to our faith. It is true that Jesus is our Savior as Christians. But actually, Jesus is not only our Savior. Jesus is our theological teacher. More than this, even, Jesus is our theological doctrinal center. 
Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry context. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today.